This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your host, Peter Korchnak. In today's episode, I'll complete a hat-trick of sorts. I previously spoke with two research fellows from Ljubljana-based Institute of Culture and Memory Studies. In episode 2, I spoke with Anna Hoffman about the new life of partisan songs, and in episode 6 with Martin Pogacar about Yugoslav rock and Yugoslavia's digital afterlives. Tanya Petrovic is the head of the institute. A linguist and anthropologist, she teaches and writes about the uses and meanings of socialist and Yugoslav legacies in post-Yugoslav societies, including the spheres of labor and gender, the role of language in forming ideologies, memory, and identity, and the relationship between memory, heritage, and historiographic narratives on Yugoslav socialism. In other words, everything I explore here at Remembering Yugoslavia. Her 2012 book, Europa, Yugoslav Heritage and the Politics of the Future in Post-Yugoslav Societies, was the first scholarly book in Serbian I'd ever read. The second one was Anna Hoffman's volume on partisan songs. Tanya hails from Serbia. And I lived with the idea that I will probably live at some point. Nostalgia is a major subject in Tanya's work. And from then on, it was clear to me that this nostalgia should not and cannot be reduced just to a sentiment of how life was nice when we were all young. And her work has a distinct political dimension. But of course, in my work, I have my own politics, and it's definitely related to giving voice to those whose voice is generally not heard. When we spoke at the Institute earlier this year, Tanya was fighting a cold. But she put in a heroic effort, and we had a great conversation. She also reminded me, in a way, why I'm doing what I'm doing with remembering Yugoslavia. American bombs, Yugoslav products, and Slovene Yugo-nostalgics also make an appearance. Dr. Tanja Petrovic, take me from the time and place you were born to today, your journey from Serbia to Slovenia and to the study of Yugoslavia. Actually, I was born in Yugoslavia, so there is no country anymore I was born. There is also the place I was born is called differently today. Today is called Jagodina. I was born in Svetozarevo, middle-sized, very industrial town in central Serbia. The story of the town's name is a prime example of how place names are put in the service of ideology. Tanya's town was called Jagodina, a name deriving from the Serbian word for strawberry, from its founding in 1399 to 1946, when the new Communist Party-led government renamed it after Svetozar Marković, a 19th-century socialist philosopher who had lived and died there. In 1992, the Serbian government changed the name back to Jagodina. I was born in 74, which means that when I was third year of my high school, the war started. When I went to study in Belgrade, it was 93, so it was in the middle of the UN sanctions. It was a very, very peculiar period to be in Serbia. And I studied and lived there. I lived through bombardment there and everything. And through that process, I was seeing basically from one month to another most of my friends living forever. And I lived with the idea that I will probably live at some point. And I left Serbia only a couple of weeks after Milosevic was finally ousted. A scholarship in Slovenia led to a doctorate, which led to a job, a family. Tanya has now lived in Ljubljana for 20 years. And when she reflects on her journey and the role Yugoslavia played in it, she warms my railway enthusiast heart. I see myself as someone who, in a way, caught last Yugoslav train. My father was the first ever in our family to finish some kind of college. He studied in Zagreb. He could afford it. His father died young, when my father was quite young. But still, he lived in a system where he had enough support that he could study and even study 
you know, not in the closest place, but somewhere, somewhere else. I myself still could go to Belgrade, study, graduate, go abroad, have a career, travel the world, write books. I have cousins who are just a couple of years younger than I am who couldn't catch that train. And they are equally diligent and smart and finished school with good grades, very good grades, but they simply could not go even to Belgrade to study. They stayed there because their parents could not support economically their studies and the system itself does not exist in the way it, it existed. So in that sense, uh, for me, that, that's Yugoslavia. For me, that's why I so much insist on uh, concrete experiences and the experiences that really mattered for concrete people's lives. And that kind of, uh, you know, knowing my relatives, my grandfather, my uncles and aunts who also were able although coming from small villages, uh, able to study, to travel, to see the world in that Yugoslavia, and who did not move from their vi village after that period. That's something that comes to my mind when I think about that country, much more than anything else. What's it like to live and work in Slovenia as a Serb? It's easy. Slovenia is a small society, but actually an open and tolerant society, much uh, more than I would say one would expect. I don't feel any distance. Yeah, now I live in Ljubljana longer than I lived in any other place in my life. So I cannot say that I have any peculiar uh, sense of not being at home here. I, I'm aware that people are aware I'm not Slovenian. I, of course, I have an accent. Yes, I have an As soon as I start talking, it's clear that, um, yes, even my kids correct me all the time. I don't feel a pressure that I need to hide that fact and I don't see any negative reaction basically about it. In her most recent book, Made in You 2015, that's YU as an acronym for Yugoslavia, Tanya co-edited a number of essays on consumer culture in socialist Yugoslavia. The idea behind it was to think and talk about objects that we associate with life in Yugoslavia and also to see what was happening with objects with the end of, of the country and the socialism and all the changes that came after. Uh, basically, the agenda was to, in a way, recuperate and bring back dignity to objects related to socialism because Objects are pretty central in uh, how we think and talk and write on socialism and studies of material culture. Very often, especially in all these discourses of nostalgia, uh, we speak essentially about objects as something which is most immediate, most accessible, and also in a way most uh, simple, even banal. Uh, so we wanted to expose more complex life and important meanings of objects because through these objects, we could uh, not only speak on socialism and life in, in that period, but also tell very, very important stories about changes in economies of time, labor, perceptions, and so on. Objects are a good lens to tell history in general. Objects or products were the main way nostalgia for socialism for the past, particularly the 1980s, manifested in my country, Slovakia, some 10-15 years ago. It almost seemed as if the toys, the candy, the cars stood for socialism itself as if there were nothing else to life in that period. What's the story in Yugoslavia? What themes emerged from the essays in the book and uh, what were the main findings? 
People in the book addressed several issues. One was some uh, very emblematic objects for socialism or objects that were desired in socialism, and then objects uh, which purpose or ways of usage change significantly. For instance, I wrote about coffee, which, which at some point was uh, not very available during socialist time, and that, that's why it, uh, the, the value of coffee was very high. But that's not the whole story. The story goes also up, and up to today because uh, the way we drink coffee today globally pretty much differs from the ways we used to drink coffee in the 80s or in the 70s. It's simply different perception of time and different perception of sociality. So most of these objects tell these broader stories on time, society, politics, labor, and so on. Uh, objects are in a way less controversial, but I would say if we look at them seriously, they always speak broader stories and are impossible to disentangle from some broader also ideas, political ideas, ways of living, ways of social organization, and so on. That's one of the kind of critiques of nostalgia goes actually in that direction, that people are nostalgic basically for objects because it's easy to consume them without thinking much. But I simply think objects have much bigger potential and a bigger meaning, and they have many layers of different stories that speak bigger things than only enjoying certain tastes or going back to certain things. You relate these objects or products to Yugoslavia and to socialism, but there's definitely an element of retro to these products, and retro is specific to time, a past, rather than a country or regime. How do these two sides of the coin relate? Definitely, and they are actually pretty intertwined, although at some point, of course, we speak about things made in you, uh, but it's not only because they are made in a particular country, which happened to be our country. It was simply a different time where making things was very different than today. Th there is this map of Yugoslavia with all important products made in different places that uh, circulates around in, in social media. And of course, it speaks on certain capacities of socialist country to produce things that are still pretty much remembered as good, desirable, and so on. But on the other hand, it's much broader story because it's very difficult to recreate that kind of map. It's, it's impossible to recreate that kind of map for post-Yugoslav societies today, but it's very difficult to recreate or create it for any other, con other country for that matter because simply the mode of production today is very different. Producing a car, producing a, any more complex uh, kind of object or product does not happen anymore in a single place. Usually we have very distributed, fragmented production or production is moved somewhere else. It's much more difficult today to relate products to some kind of national self-esteem, which was easier in Yugoslavia, but generally easier for any country in the world in the second part of the 20th century. And how does the book fit into the big picture of your work? What I really kind of want to do through my writing, basically, is not to disentangle history of socialist Yugoslavia from people for whom that history is still lived experience. That, of course, makes things very complex and complicated and not very neat and pretty chaotic. But I think we should not, you know, stay away from these complexities and, and, and ambiguities emerging from the fact that 
very different people still have not only memory, but also basically first-hand experience of, of living in that country at that time. And also to take seriously what they have to say about that time and their own experience with it. We cannot write histories of Yugoslavia ignoring that experience. And I always try to look at the experience and all the complex ways in which it reveals not only the past, but also reveals certain imaginations of the future that are felt as being basically lost today. Which brings me to Yugo nostalgia. It's as if all roads lead to it. What's your take on the phenomenon? I did my first ethnographic research in a more or less abandoned factory, cable factory in, in Jagodina in Svetozaro, which was the largest one of the largest uh, factories of that kind in, in socialist Yugoslavia. So I was talking to workers there about their memories on, on working in socialism. And from then on, it was clear to me that this nostalgia should not and cannot be reduced just to a sentiment of how life was nice when we were all young, which would be one of the easy ways to, a pretty much frequent ways to explain it. And also, I was somehow more leaning to inter always to interpretation of nostalgia which, as something which is actually political and which should be taken seriously, that it's not something that, you know, paralyzes people in the past, but actually speaks of broader desires that these people talk about referring to their own experience from the past, something they, they lived and they, for which they immediately, from their own experience, know that it actually can be different. Many people, uh, particularly in this region, and particularly when it's directed to the socialist era, consider nostalgia as more negative than positive in many ways. Let's say, those that suffer from nostalgia are stuck in the past. In your work, uh, you attempt to correct this view and uh, show nostalgia is about something else altogether. So to what extent have you been able to change any misperceptions of nostalgia that persist out here? You know, nostalgia is... It's a recursively fancy topic. It comes back all the time. And people choose different ways to think and speak about that. There, I would say there is already a critical body of research saying loudly that, yes, it's something more complex, it's something political, it's something to be taken seriously. And there, and I think it's also very important, you know, usually if you would say that 20 years ago, someone said, yes, but Yugoslavia was anyway a special case. You cannot generalize it. But I think today we already have very good research done in different places, from GDR to Czech Republic, Russia, Soviet Union, and so on, which complicates this argument uh, and argues for both for complexity and political relevance, and most important for actually uh, future-oriented imagination that this nostalgia entails much more than being frozen in the past. Of course, nostalgia is not a um, very homogeneous phenomenon. It's not something, when we speak about nostalgia, it can be all, all sorts of things. And probably when I speak about that and someone else, we don't speak about the same thing because there are many instances of using certain sentiments in a very kind of pragmatic uh, but also very superficial way. Uh, there is the whole consumerist industry going on, basically, and flourishing because of, of some of these nostalgic feelings. I think it's very important to be discreet and concrete here and make clear 
what we are speaking and about whom and essentially give the voice to these people. Being from here, this topic, of course, has a personal dimension for you. You're not a politician and you're also not just a distant observer. I grew up in this this country or these countries. I was observing closely all these people. I grew up with them. For me, it's important not to tell simplified stories about citizens in Yugoslavia. We are all living on on the couple of shadows. One of the shadows is, of course, the socialism itself, the fact that we will always be kind of second-class European citizens, never democratic enough, never developed enough, totalitarian uh, legacies and blah, blah. And of course, the other shadow is uh, the way Yugoslavia disintegrated and all the violence and everything that happened. Because of this, it's very, the framework in which we can discuss Yugoslavia is very normative. And it's not easy to tell more complex stories and try to understand these people as they are actually, not only ascribing certain characteristics to them and sorting them out in one place or another, which is usually happening. My impression from my travels and conversations and readings has been that Yugo nostalgia has socioeconomic and generational dimensions, much more than a political spectrum dimension. So rather than a left-right-wing kind of cleavage with those on the left nostalgic for Yugoslavia and those on the right denouncing it, Yugo nostalgia, to the extent it still exists, of course, is a phenomenon found more among the older generation and among those who lost the most in the transition to market economies, those who are less wealthy and those who are less educated, say. Yes, you're right. I mean, very often, of course, those who more and most are those who lost most. But I would say in economic, most immediate terms, that loss led to poverty, led to kind of living beyond or under the line of, of dignity. But I think we all lost a lot, and that loss is something to acknowledge. And in the first place, also those who who lost a lot, there are millions of them. People, economically speaking, in terms of living standard, and also in terms of possibilities and prospects people or their kids have, shrank dramatically if we compare it to, to Yugoslavia. On the other hand, as I visit Yugoslavia-related sites, it is Slovenian tourists that seem to comprise the majority of visitors from ex-Yugoslavia. One tour guide even told me, they were the first to leave and now they're the most Yugo-nostalgic. How would you explain this contradiction? There are many things there. I'm sure part of the explanation is that they can afford it. Part of the explanation is that the rupture that the night is brought were much smaller here than in other places, so it's easier to bridge that rupture and try to establish some continuity and normalcy uh, than it would be in, in uh, some other places. I think it's also because situation here is economically more stable, politically more stable. Of course, Slovenia is a, in a way... Um, as any of these countries, and first among them it became kind of a national state. And that's important fact, and it's still in the center of the national mythology. But on the other hand, exactly probably because of the the dissolution process was not so painful and traumatic and costly. This society is kind of still more defined of some, some you know, citizenship-based principles than on purely on the national ones. What does Yugoslavia say to people of today about the future? 
of course, it's still a very concrete period where, where many of us live some part of our lives. On the other hand, Yugoslavia is much more. It's also an idea. It's a kind of an idea of a society uh, that was, to some extent, also realized and lived, but even more strived for. The idea that became practically impossible since the disintegration of Yugoslavia happened because of the way it happened. Basically, we now lived in a very, you know, ethnically defined national small societies, and it's very difficult to imagine and to practice any identification and to negotiate any kind of political position that would be outside uh, that national frame. Yugoslavia made it possible and also made at least promises for certain ways of vertical mobility, of porousness of class and other identities. That is lost today. That is much more difficult to imagine today. And although we very badly need these possibilities. What I'm wondering is how salient Yugoslavia is for the average layperson. I mean, you and I dedicate our time and you, your career, to studying that disappeared country. But how does it actually affect people in their everyday life after so many years? How much mind space do they dedicate to it with all that's going on? Yeah, that's something I think about uh, myself a lot. For me, in my own everyday life and struggle and, you know, raising kids and making family life, this is a very important thing. That important that my kids basically make jokes of me on that point. They say, like, the only thing you know to talk and write about is Yugoslavia, but you need to be aware it's already gone. <laughs> Find something more actual. <laughs> but basically, I think the legacy of that country and much more, even more the promise that country had is absolutely important for all these people struggling to make ends meet from month to month in all these uh, post-Yugoslav societies. Uh, not because we need to stick to some past, which is definitely past and cannot be uh, anyhow recuperated, but because certain premises the U Yugoslavia society was based upon are badly needed today. That's that's my view on, on it, and of course it may look as a in a way as a, you know privilege going back to some some past and looking at it and sticking to it. Uh, but I think it's important and it's a good reminder for all things people are losing, which are the reason they are struggling so much. There is no social security anymore. There is no uh, welfare state is more or less dismantled in all these countries. There is no union rights. There is no worker rights whatsoever. All these things not only were possible, but these people, or at least the next generation can easily learn that that was actually existing in this country. And there is a way, obviously, to have a more or less uh, sustainable society with all these these rights. And the problem, of course, much more, uh, much broader and basically global symptom of our time is that we are taught all that and told all the time that what we have today with this neoliberal capitalism is the only only option and there is no other there is no alternative to it but i think um historical experiences as yugoslav one and for that matter pretty much of uh, we can find i mean i don't want also to you know idealize or essentialize yugoslav experience but 
on the international level, non-aligned movement uh, ideas, ideas of alternatives were much more profound in the second part of the 20th century than they are today. And I think we have to go back to these alternatives to be able to make future better for our kids. And that's really very kind of uh, immediate political issue. It's not something which is just privilege of academics and a luxury because they can do funny things in their time. I think it's really pressing issue. And uh, doing that, I think we should not also run away or be afraid of the concrete experience. Very often, many uh, many activists, many people simply believe that there there are good ideas in Yugoslav past, especially in the the liberation struggle and the partisan movement of the Second World War and anti-fascism. But somehow they avoid the actual socialist period as something that was ideologically tainted. But I think there is no history without, and there is no period without uh, ambiguities, tensions, uh, different phenomena, and uh, cleaning history in that sense does not bring any good. I think we need to take it in all its complexity, but insist of importance of alternatives that period was offering. If I didn't know who I was speaking to, I'd think you're an aspiring politician. Is there a political agenda behind your research, your work, your thinking about Yugoslavia? No, I think uh, we all have some political agenda. I don't think it's anyhow delegitimizing anything saying that. It's not political in the sense of daily politics or or a real politics in that sense. But of course, in my work, I have my own politics. And it's definitely related to giving voice to those whose voice is generally not heard, even when we try positively to evaluate and uh, go back to the Yugos- history of Yugoslavia. And of course, insisting on uh, on certain achieved values and rights and basically achievements during socialist period that were swiftly erased after socialism ended and simply uh, erased together with everything else in this no narrative of totalitarian system that needs to be, you know, dealt with and distanced from. And I think that kind of politics is very important and I'm not, uh, you know, running away from that. I simply think it's it's a necessary politics. As an academic, I, I definitely think politics is important part of what we do. That's why I think the the issue how we approach that legacy and what we do with that is essential and that's why we simply uh, need to insist on uh, two things at least or three. One is of course anti-fascist character of uh, the struggle uh, from which Yugoslavia emerged and that country in general and then the fact that it was not only anti-fascist opposition or, or struggle against occupying forces, it was, and that's essential, also socialist, uh, social revolution. And of course, the third thing is that that was the country and the society that what provided the framework where uh, ethnic and national identities were totally fine and the whole thing was still organized to some level through republic context but still uh, that was the context in which citizenship was defined also beyond your ethnic or national belonging that's something which uh, today is pretty much missing especially in some parts of Yugoslavia it's missing most in those parts of Yugoslavia where the wars were most brutal 
like in Bosnia. And uh, I think these three things are something we need to repeat all the time. Sounds like a political platform indeed. At any rate, what your kids tell you resonates with me. On the one hand, I meet a lot of ex-Yugoslavs who say that what I'm doing is important, but on the other hand, there's a fair number of those who say, uh, let it go already, everything's already been said on the matter, Yugoslavia is history. There are many, still, still many important issues to be told about Yugoslavia. I think we were dealing with the war, we were de- dealing with trauma, there was this trauma discourse very important for a long time. And I think it's time now to speak of Yugoslavia as a political project, not only in, you know, these uh, real politics terms, but as a political idea, actually, as an idea of, uh, in these terms of lost possibilities for the future, that proved to be very important. And also all these solidarities, uh, alliances that were possible at that moment, that's something that still awaits. And I would say... uh in a way, it's not bad because that forces us to try to speak in Yugoslavia, not only in this niche of trauma, violence, brotherly killing, whatever, but in more universal political terms of alternative possibilities, ideas. Questions of ideology aside, back in socialism, whether you were in Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia, we had a future. We were working towards something, building something. Now all we have is the past. But we also need to kind of remind ourselves that's actually a global sentiment. It's not only post-socialist. It's stronger in post-socialist places because the idea of a future was a little bit stronger there. But it's it's a general symptom of the present day. We live in a kind of time where future is, let's say, future is very difficult to imagine in utopian terms. It's more It comes more as a dystopia. When we think about future, it's basically something scary. That's something I would say global, but that also kind of makes thinking and writing and making stories out of places and periods in which future was imaginable very important. I too think about the politics of this project, of remembering Yugoslavia a great deal. What started as a personal exploration, a therapeutic outlet, may fast be becoming something else, simply by the selection of guests, who they are and what they do, and by extension what they say. After all, it does seem as though people who have something to say about Yugoslavia, that I talk to anyway, can mostly say good things about it. This is not necessarily my intention. I aim to observe and document and report. So if you know of anyone who has a critical view of Yugoslavia, please contact me on the Remembering Yugoslavia website. Likewise, because I interview people for whom Yugoslavia is a matter of professional interest in one way or another, the voices of ordinary Yugoslavs or ex-Yugoslavs are in danger of being underrepresented here. So if you're listening, particularly if you live outside the former Yugoslavia, and would like to share your story, write me a note or record your message using the voicemail widget available on the contact page at rememberingyugoslavia.com. Until then, I'll also think about the future specifically about how best to use the past to shape a better future. No matter what happened, good time or bad, prosperity or war, it can be used as a foundation for progress. Anytime someone asks me how I am, and especially if things aren't going according to plan, I try to remind myself of a mantra the protagonist of the film Do You Remember Dolly Bell intones throughout the story. Svakoga dana u svakom pogledu sve više napredujemo. Every day, in every way, we make more and more progress. Every day, in every way, we make more and more progress. Every day, in every way, we make more and more progress. Every day, in every way, we make more and more progress.
That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening and fighting for a better future. Find resources for this episode as well as subscription links at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. And if you imagine a future for Remembering Yugoslavia, support the show on Patreon or spread the word. I appreciate it. And I extend a hero's welcome to the pioneering supporters and members Ivan, Mina and Alexander. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by No Sense licensed under Creative Commons. I am Peter Korchniak. Adiós.